Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It's Tuesday, and yesterday Steve Bannon had his Perp Walk 2.0, and not surprisingly, was completely defiant and brazen. In case you missed it, uh, here's here is uh, Steve Bannon breathing defiance. I'm telling you right now, this is going to be the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Biden. Joe Biden ordered Merrick Garland to prosecute me from the White House lawn when he got off Marine One. Sure. And we're going to do, we're going to go yeah, on the right. offense. We're tired of playing defense. We're going to go on the offense on this and stand by. He's clearly enjoying himself. So our guest today, Brian Kloss, professor of global politics at the University College London, where he focuses on appropriate enough democracy, authoritarianism, and American politics and foreign policy. And he's got a new book out uh, called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. Also, he's a columnist for The Washington Post and host of his own podcast, Power Corrupts. Brian, uh, good morning or where you are afternoon. Thanks for having me on the show. So you're you're in England right now. You're, I am we're like how many time zones are we off? Like six, six, six seven time, time zones. Zone? Yeah, for if you're if you're in Wisconsin, we're six time zones ahead. Okay, so it's good morning here, good evening there. Okay, so give me your take on Steve Bannon and what he represents. You write about authoritarianism, the threat to democracy. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that Steve Bannon is the tip of the spear of many of the assaults on the legitimacy of the election and of the the democratic process. So what, what, what are we listening to there? Well, I think what you're listening to is part of a systematic authoritarian attack on democratic institutions and the rule of law in the United States. And you're right that Bannon is the tip of the of the spear, so to speak. You know, I think he's also indicative of a victimhood complex that defines so much of Trumpism and actually is often part of authoritarian politics around the world. I mean, it's much easier to rally people in uh, attacks on democratic institutions and sort of an us versus them mentality if you make them feel like they're victims. And so Bannon is trying to set himself out to be a martyr in the center of this victimhood complex. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, the most absurd projection as well. The idea that he's saying that, you know, by that Biden has politicized rule of law when anybody would be prosecuting someone who's ignoring a congressional subpoena to this level of brazenness. And in fact, Trump is the person who, you know, literally launched his campaign with a chant of lock her up about his political opponent. So the idea that the Democrats are the ones politicizing rule of law couldn't be further from the truth. And I think that Bannon is just one more little glimpse uh, of how deep the rot goes in this political movement. It, it is an interesting split screen. Um, I, I saw one analysis this morning, I'm sure you've seen it as well, suggesting that the Bannon circus will undermine uh, the the January 6th committee because they're trying to look like they're a serious, sober rule of law, um, congressional oversight operation. And then you have Steve Bannon, who's decided he's going to turn it into a circus. Uh, so you, you, again, your, your thoughts on that, because it, it does strike me once again that, that we have these two parallel narratives going on and that they're talking past one another and that Steve Bannon... Um, well, first of all, Steve Bannon knows exactly what he is doing, and he's thoroughly enjoying himself. Would you agree with that? I mean, this this is a guy who is not who is not fearful, who is not afraid, who is not uh, chagrined in any way whatsoever, and this is exactly where he wants to be. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. Nobody who is actually ashamed of their actions or worried about prosecution live streams their own arrest. So, you know, <laughs> I, I I think that what's happening here, though, is is something that's really really worrying about our political culture because. When Bannon live streamed that, yes, it's about his intent, it's about his brazenness. 
But there is a segment of our population, of America's population, that is tuning in, some of them because they believe he's you know, just and righteous in this whole charade, but some of them because it's, it's entertainment, right? That it's funny for them or it's enjoyable right. to have him stick it to the Democrats. And I think that aspect of our corrosive political culture is something we should be really worried about. I think when we think about how to deal with this, though, we have to separate out the people who are, you know, long gone Trumpies who will never be persuaded from the people who are actually persuadable. And I think the Democrats and the January 6th Commission, including people like Liz Cheney, need to be focusing on the persuadable Republicans, the ones who haven't gone off the deep end yet. Because it's always going to be a lost cause and a circus for the people who think, you know, Trump is righteous, Bannon is righteous, et cetera. I think what you need to do is to make this seem appropriately, like a serious inquiry that's just trying to get the truth, and that people like Bannon, who are on tape fomenting the insurrection, uh, you know, are held to account. And I think that actually can break through with that admittedly small percentage, but still an important percentage of Republicans who are not fully Trumpy. It's a a completely different environment. So let's talk about your book today, which I wrote something down I was going to say, and then I realized that it was probably going to sound a little bit backhanded, but um, I was surprised by how much I liked your book. Let me put it that way. Uh, It is corruptible, who gets power and how it changes us. And it's really a meditation on the corruptive force of power itself. Uh, You know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And you you put together a video where you explain the book. And I think that was a good way of of kicking off our discussion. So, Brian, if you don't mind, um, this is you talking about your book. My new book just came out and it's called Corruptible. Who gets power and how it changes us. So let me tell you a little bit about it. I started my career studying dictators and despots. But somewhere along the way, it occurred to me that dictators aren't just to be found running countries. You can also find them in boardrooms, in homeowners associations, in mid-level management, or if you're unlucky, coaching your kid's sports team. And this led to a puzzle. Why is it that there are so many people who we know, our friends and family, that we know are good and decent and would make exceptional leaders. And yet when we think about the people who are in charge, our current leadership, there are so many people who are not good or decent. And so what I did was I traveled around the globe and I traveled around the United States interviewing more than 500 people who had no business being in charge. From war criminals and former despots to psychopaths and cult leaders and neighborhood tyrants. I tried to figure out what makes them tick. And to do that, I also did some sort of strange things. I sipped wine with the daughter of a cannibalistic dictator in Paris. I had breakfast with a yogurt kingpin in Madagascar. Mm. I took a ski lesson with a man who once ruled Iraq. And I spoke with psychopaths and criminals. And then I combined the insights from those one-on-one meetings with the latest cutting-edge research from behavioral economics, evolutionary biology, neuroscience, psychology, and political science, to try to answer the question posed by the subtitle of my book, Who Gets Power and How Does It Change Us? So uh, I had two reactions to that, uh, Brian. Um, The the first was, you must have an awful lot of frequent flyer miles. (laughs) Indeed, It it must be truly awesome. You know, it's a shame, too, because the pandemic put a a bit of a wrinkle, and I I had some other plans, too. I was going to get my brain (laughs) scanned to see how much of a psychopath I was, for example, and that got canceled, and I was going to fly to the Philippines, all this stuff. And but I still managed to get around the globe quite a lot, yeah. Okay, so uh, tell me about the daughter of the cannibalistic dictator. 
that you uh, get coffee with in Paris. I mean, yeah, who, so, who, 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 so cannibalistic we, we, dictator. Yeah, so this is uh, her, her. Her dad is Jean Bedel Bocasa, and he was the emperor because he proclaimed this an empire of the Central African Empire, the Central African Republic nowadays in the 1970s. He was, uh, you know, partly installed at the help of the French government. And, you know, one of the things that was quite striking about him is that he, like many dictators, killed and tortured his enemies. But unlike many dictators, he allegedly served some of those victims to visiting dignitaries. There's a a story that he uh, apparently told a diplomat after the meal, you just ate human. Um, and so, you know, a really disturbing individual and, and what I, the reason why I met with his daughter, he had, by the way, I think more than 50 kids. Um, but the reason I met with his daughter was because there's a question I'm posing early on in the book, which is, are we genetically predisposed to being power hungry? Right. And, and people have actually studied this and there is a power gene, uh, that's been identified by researchers that has a strong correlation with people who end up in leadership positions. But we can't really disaggregate that from whether that's power-seeking behavior or just a gene that's correlated with being good at getting power because you're charismatic or magnetic or whatever it is. So I went to meet with her, and it, the thing that was so interesting is, you know, she said that her family functions like a bit of a cult, right? Where where they have this sort of view of the emperor as this the the center, uh, the kingpin of the family, and she sort of broke with it over time. The more that she read about what her dad actually did. And yet when I asked her, you know, would you consider running for office? She, she gave the answer that American politicians give when they're definitely running, which is I'm not ruling anything out. Right? Mm. So, so I, I, I got this sense from her where she was trying to grapple with this idea on the one hand that she wanted to distance herself from these you know, atrocious acts that her dictatorial father had committed. But also, she was weirdly proud of her surname. She was weirdly proud of the power associated with it. And also really keen on the idea that maybe, once again, a Bacasa like herself will be on the throne in the Central African Republic, returning it to an empire. And so, you know, I I think this is one of the angles where I was trying to understand individuals. Because one of the critiques I have of a lot of the social sciences is – it's all well and good that we think about structures and institutions, but people also drive change, right? And people like Bacasa or his daughter are important for understanding why these things are happening. I mean, try to explain the American presidency of the last five years without talking about Donald Trump's personality. And yet a lot of our analysis in, in academia just completely write out personality from, from the equation. And so that's why I, I combined these interviews and the storytelling of these individuals with the the research that I came across. Okay, so you talk you, you talk about the the dictators and the homeowners associations, the little league coaches, etc., the people who are in the boardrooms, uh, middle level management. So, w- what is the the you know thumbnail version? What does make these people tick, and why do why do assholes so often rise to the top? Yeah, so there, there's sort of two things happening here. I think for the for the homeowners association, I have a section in there which I absolutely love about this insane petty tyrant from an Arizona homeowners association. I interviewed the guy who went up against him and tried to get him removed. And it's this, it's this amazing story because the pettiness is just off the wall. Um, he's obsessed with how palm trees are trimmed. I mean, it's, it's bizarre, but anyway, so what happens in these situations, I think is that when you have no competition or low amounts of competition for a position of power, it's like rolling out the red carpet to the power hungry 
petty tyrants because nobody wants to be a homeowners association president. No one wants to end up imposing fines on, you know, Susan down the street because she put her trash bins out four minutes too late. You know, so the people who do want to do that are disproportionately likely to be power hungry. I mean, the way that I put it in an analogy is that you wouldn't expect a high school basketball tryout to have people of average height, right? There's going to be mm-hmm. tall kids. The same is true for positions of power. People who are power hungry are going to put their hat in the ring for them. But there's another thing happening, and I explore this with a story from Schenectady, New York, about a psychopathic janitor, which is that there's this trait that people have called the dark triad. It's Machiavellianism, uh, narcissism, and psychopathy, being a psychopath. Hmm. And there's lots of research that shows that while these people are pretty bad at wielding power because they're dysfunctional, they're actually very, very good at obtaining it. And they're obsessed by it. And the so reason those are for separate that, skills. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's a, and, and the reason, you know, this is one of the main points that I spent a lot of the book dealing with is that I don't think we've thought about designing systems to repel these kind of individuals. In fact, I think we've actually designed our systems in a way that attracts and promotes these individuals. So you think about the job interview format. I mean, you're trying to charm somebody in 30 minutes to an hour. That is the perfect, absolutely perfect format for a psychopathic narcissist because they're, they're, they're able to be chameleon-like. They have superficial charm. They're, you know, it's one of the first traits that people talk about with psychopaths is how they're charming on the, on the, on the surface. And you know, they're really cold and calculating and strategic. And so they're very good at making people like them in times when they need to be liked. But then when it comes to actually wielding power justly or with empathy, I mean, you know, they're, they're lizard brains. And I mean this in, in sort of almost a clinical way because they're, they're, for psychopaths, their brains are actually broken, right? Their, their amygdalas don't function right. the right way and so on. Uh, so I think what's happening is that there's a self-selection effect around power where certain people are more willing to go for it and are certainly better at obtaining it. And I, I, I write in the book all sorts of ways that we can try to counteract that. But I think, unfortunately, we're not doing that right now, which is why so many leaders uh, are awful. Okay, so th- this is the most difficult question, I think, and and you spend a lot of time talking about it, basically. So are these bullies and tyrants, are they created by corrupt institutions or are they just born that way? The answer is both. And I think discerning which is which, that's the challenge, right? Because if somebody is a is a fundamentally corrupted person, and in this I'd, I'd also include psychopaths, because as I say, their brains literally do not work properly, then you can't fix them by reforming the system. But if somebody is a good, decent person to begin with, and then they behave cor- in a corrupt way because their system has turned them rotten, you have a different diagnosis and a different fix. So that's the challenge, right? Now, there's a really interesting study I talk about in the book where these economists, you know, what they did was they said, we're going to have you roll a dice. And the more often you roll a six, the more money you get. Now, of course, it's completely random, but they allowed the participants to self-report their scores. They could write down whatever they wanted and there was no oversight. So you could cheat. And what they found was when they ran this study in India, where the civil service is notoriously corrupt and has lots of bribe taking, that the people who lied on their dice rolls also were the people who wanted to go into politics and civil service. When they ran the study in Denmark, which is a notoriously clean country, the effect was completely inverted. So in other words, the people who lied on their dice rolls wanted to go into business and didn't want to go into public service. So 
I think there's a self-selection effect that is designed by the system where, you know, a corrupt system attracts corrupt individuals, a good system attracts good individuals. Now that has a lesson for us in US politics, I think, because the Republican Party, what, what's happening right now with its, not just its behavior, but also the people who are put on a pedestal as its stars. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Steve Bannon. I mean, if you think that's what leadership is, that's the kind of person who's going to go for the Republican primaries in 2022, 2024, and beyond. If you're somebody who thinks that, you know, principal service is what it's all about, they're going to say, this isn't the party for me. So you have a winnowing effect where you're starting to sort of peel back all the good and decent people who were in the Republican Party because they're simply seeing a vision of the system that doesn't jive with their belief in, and, and principles. And I think that's really, really dangerous uh, for American politics going forward. So let's go back to the India versus Denmark study that you just, just described. You know, clearly you have a corrupt political system in India, a much more honest, honorable system in Denmark. How much of that is a reflection of the culture? Is the system, is the system a product of the culture? Does the system warp the culture. Again, it's this chicken and egg thing. What comes first? Yeah, it is a chicken or an egg problem. And I think I think I, you know, I I resist I resist explanations that say certain cultures are more corrupt in, you know, instinctively or anything like that. The the study that I think works really well to explain where I come down on this question is one that was done by an economist at Boston University named Ray Fisman, and it's a, a really funny one about UN parking tickets because United Nations diplomats have have immunity. So they basically can get away with petty crimes without ever paying fines. So they can park illegally as much as they want to, or they used to be able to. And what was really interesting was that when you tallied up, there were like 150,000 parking tickets in New York over this period of the study by these diplomats from the United Nations. And as you'd expect, the ones from Norway, you know, parked very legally. The ones from Egypt and Yemen and so on uh, had, mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of parking violations per diplomat. Then what happened was they started to crack down on this. They started to say, look, we, we can't have the city run this way, so we're still going to enforce the fines. And there was a convergence effect where basically the corrupt countries overnight started behaving like the clean countries. They started parking legally. And, and the thing that's really interesting about this on the flip side was that before that enforcement was put into place, the longer the Norwegian diplomats were in New York and knew they could get away with it, the more they started parking illegally. Mm. So, so the point here is that enforcement and accountability matters enormously. Again, you know, the Bannon story reflects this perfectly, and so does the Republican Party. When you have oversight, when you have accountability, even people who are used to behaving in unacceptable ways start to clean up their act. And when you get when you let people get away with it, even the good, clean people start to behave in a more corrupt way because they get tempted. So, you know, I, I don't think it's something where it's a fundamental trait of certain types of people writ large. I think it's much more about the systems, the level of accountability, and what you think is normal behavior of the people around you. And, and, and you get that a lot in India where, you know, if everybody else is taking a bribe, you'd be a chump not to. Sure, sure. These are, these are the incentives. So, you know, when I was reading through your book, I kept thinking about what, what uh, Hayek wrote about in the mid-1940s, because, of course, he also wrote about why the worst get on top. The unscrupulous and the uninhibited are likely to become more successful in certain societies where they have the, the opportunity to have full scope for their, their unscrupulousness. So I'm sure you're, you're familiar with, with Hayek's work. Do you have a different take than he did? Because he essentially said 
that this was built into the system. And this is one of the reasons why, as sort of the father of, you know, modern conservatism in a lot of ways, saying this is why we don't trust the concentration of power. This is why centralized governments always should be treated with distrust because inevitably they create an environment where the worst people get on top. I'm guessing you have a you have a different take on this because his whole argument about why the worst get on top was central to his critique of socialism because no matter what kind of a socialist system you designed, he said eventually the worst people will get in charge of it, which is why you shouldn't allow that kind of power to be concentrated. Well, I mean, I, I generally agree with that. I mean, I think I think that that is something where one of the main arguments in my book is that even if you have, you know, even if you get lucky, right? I, I close the book with a the, the title of the chapter is Waiting for Cincinnatus. And even if you get a Cincinnatus-like figure, I mean, are you really going to predicate the success and sustainability of your entire political system on getting lucky? You know, I, I think that's a mistake. So one of the things that I think we've lost sight of that, that Hayek would probably point out in 2021 is that you have to assume that power-hungry, abusive people are disproportionately drawn to power and disproportionately good at getting it. And then you have to design from the ground up mm -hmm. a system that stops them at every turn. Now, I don't think it's just about who's in power, though. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to make a major corrective for in this book is to say, I think a lot of our political discourse and a lot of our discourse about abusive power in business, sports, et cetera, happens because we focus on who's actually there, which I think is a tip of the iceberg problem. In other words, Yes, we need to hold our leaders to account, but we have to have a much larger conversation about who's not getting into power, who's repulsed by it. And I, I think of this with you know modern events in the last sort of six, eight months where school board members are getting mm -hmm. screamed at by zealots who are giving them death threats and so on. And you think, you know, imagine you're a parent who just wants to help your kid's school get a little bit better and you're thinking about running for school board. This is how, by the way, I got interested in politics. My mom was on the school board in, hmm. in, in Minnesota. And, you know, I think nowadays, I'm not sure she would run. I, right. I, I think there's a lot of people who are like that because they weigh up the sort of community service aspect against the death threats, the harassment, people picketing your house and so on. And so, you know, my, my view on this is that we have to make power palatable and attractive to people who don't want power because of the power. Mm. They want power because of the service. And right now, I don't think we're doing that. I think we're actually doing exactly the opposite, which is that we're, we're basically rolling out the red carpet to the worst in our society and saying, you know, throw your hat in the ring. We want you. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like as if we are squeezing out the people who are there because they want to serve. Uh, you know, those are the kinds of people who would be most likely to say, you know, I don't need this in my life. Why do I want to be on the school board? Why do I want to be an election official? Why would I want to be a congressman? And when they leave, they leave the field open for the people you describe in this book. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that's that's what's happening, you know, in in the Republican Party right now, is that basically you've had a purge over the last several years. Some of it self-selected, right? Some people who've bowed out because they know they're going to lose a primary or they're just, they just think it's too ugly or they're worried about their families getting targeted. Some of them are being, you know, beaten in electoral politics, uh, et cetera. But either way, the effect is, is the same, right? I mean, and th this is the thing that I'm so worried about with, with all sorts of aspects uh, of U.S. politics from the local level up to the national level is that we are not making systems of power that draw in 
the best right. of our society. And I think that is a much bigger problem that is only manifesting the symptoms of what we see in the news every day. Okay, I want to get to your suggestions a little bit later, but one of the, let's just zero in on one area that I found very, very interesting, your, your discussion of um, police. Because mm-hmm. one of the big questions is what kind of people do we uh, attract to police forces? Do we attract the people who are the would-be, wannabe tyrants, bullies? Um, are there other models for doing that? And I, and I thought your your discussion of the contrast between the way we recruit police in the United States versus, for example, New Zealand was very interesting. So could you talk about that a little bit? Because New Zealand has a completely different police culture than we do. Yeah, it does. So I started to look at how recruitment differs across countries, and and I found some you know absurd examples from the United States. So there's there's a recruitment video that used to be on the Doraville, Georgia Police Department. Doraville is a town of about ten thousand people outside of Atlanta, very you know comparatively low levels of crime and so on. Um, and the video displays it first starts with the logo of the Punisher, right? This vigilante justice figure that uses, you know, extreme methods of torture and violence to punish criminals. And then it shows people in military fatigues in a tank, basically, um, rolling into view, you know, death metal music in the background. They get out, they throw some smoke grenades, they've got their guns drawn and so on. And then the video ends. And, you know, I, I thought to myself, okay, if there's somebody out there who just wants to become a community service officer in the police force, they're going to look at that and they're going to go, okay, I, I was totally mistaken about what this was. So when I spoke to the New Zealand police, uh, the head of their recruitment agency, because they have a national police force, I said, you know, what, what have you done differently? And they pointed me to this video where it's a comedic take, very highly produced, really funny. It went viral. It's got, you know, New Zealand has 5 million people. It's been viewed 2 million times on YouTube. And basically what they did was they had this video of these cops who don't look like stereotypical New Zealand cops in the sense of demographics. So it's a lot more, uh, a lot more women, a lot more ethnic minorities who are disproportionately unrepresented in the police. And they're chasing this unseen figure and they're stopping to help you know, an old person cross the road. They're stopping <laughs> to dance with people yeah. and so on. And then they get to the, the perpetrator and it's a dog who's stolen uh, somebody's purse, right? And at the end it says, you know, do you care enough to be a cop? And I look mm. at this and I'm like, the juxtaposition between that and Doraville is, 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 is absurd. But when they actually crunch the numbers, I mean, their applications across the board shot up. They got way more people trying to become cops after this recruitment campaign. But the kinds of people were very different. And then also they had a massive emphasis put on screening and also oversight during the early years uh, of a police officer's time in service. And they have very low rates of police violence, very low rates of community complaints, very representative force in terms of reflecting the community it's policing. And I just, you know, what I kept coming back to was when I hear discussions of U.S. police, I think, you know, on the one side, there's the extreme view of defunding the police. On the other side, the view that we should do nothing. And I think actually there's a, there's a middle ground that's just, let's think a little bit about who would make a good police officer. Now, it's not to say that police officers currently in uniform are bad. It's just that disproportionately, if you were to be a bad apple, if you were a bigot or a bully, the idea of walking around with a badging gun is attractive to you. So you do get bad apples in police departments at higher rates than the community at large, which is why domestic abuse, for example, is much higher in police departments than in the general population. So, you know, I think we have to think about this problem differently, not what the police do, 
but think a little bit more about who the police are and how we can make the recruitment more palatable to people who are actually not drawn to the badge and the gun, but are drawn to patrolling their communities and serving the population. So you talk about, you know, who gets power and how it changes us. And you have a little subchapter with the title, which I love, Alpha Males from Baboons to the Boardroom. So, you know, the, the, the alpha male has all the advantages. Are you writing about alpha males? Are alpha males the ones who are the most drawn to power? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So, yes, I mean, they're, they're, I think that in terms of traits for both power-seeking and power-obtaining, uh, the alphas in the society, which, you know, I, I'm referring specifically here to non-human primates, baboons, chimpanzees, mm-hmm. macaques, etc. Um, they're good at getting power. They're good at getting to the top. One of the things I found really interesting, though, in this in this research was that it's not necessarily good to be on top as much as we think it is, which is to say that when you look at non-human primate societies and you measure aging, which you can do on the genetic, on a DNA level, you can actually look at some using DNA methylation, you can actually look at how quickly somebody is aging biologically, and you look at stress hormones in their blood. What happens is what you'd expect, which is to say at the bottom, those baboons or chimpanzees are really stressed out. And that diminishes over time because they have, you know, or, or, or as you go up the hierarchy, because the higher up you are, the better you access you have to resources, et cetera, except for at the very top. At the very top, the baboon is extremely stressed and is aging extraordinarily quickly. There's one example where a baboon over the period of 10 months uh, aged biologically three years after they got to the top position in power. And so the weird takeaway from the, the primate research is actually the best place to be is second in command or near the top where you have all the spoils, but none of the stress. So, you know, I, I don't know how well that holds for people like Mike Pence when people are chanting, hang Mike Pence. But I do think that in general, you think about, you know, name people in the tech industry who are at the top. I mean, you can name Elon Musk, you can name, you know, people like Bill Gates, you can name people at the top of all these other companies trying to name their vice presidents who are making a heck of a lot of money with a lot less stress and a lot less of the public spotlight, it's harder. And they're having good lives without all of the uh, debilitating stress that's probably killing them quicker. So, you know, I think that's one of the lessons. When, and we see this with presidential aging. There's actually one study I cite in the book where um, they looked at 17 countries over 200 years and compared people who won elections to be head of state versus people who were the runner-ups and never mm-hmm. got into the position of power. And the people who won died 4.4 years earlier on average. So, you know, I think there is something to this fact that we see people go into the White House and come out with a lot more gray hairs. So being number two has its advantages. This is yeah, very, very that's, clear. That's, that's the takeaway. So you deal with it with another one of the enduring myths, which is that, okay, so uh, the tyrant may be anti-democratic, but uh, at least they make the trains run on time. And of course, that was the the line about Benito Mussolini, that he made the trains run on time. And, and, and this, of course, is one of the attractions of authoritarianism, isn't it? That authoritarianism gives gets things done, that, that liberal democracies, uh, you know, tend to be, you know, sterile, they tend to be uh, in, inefficient. So um, did, did Mussolini do this? Did he make the trains run on time? Is, is that one of the advantages that, that the tyrants, the bullies, the authoritarians have? You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating because I think this is another instance of we're totally misdiagnosing what's happening. What's happening in Mussolini's case, what happened in Mussolini's case, was that he took credit for previous investments, and the things that he did actually caused most of the trains to run worse. (laughs) He had a few sort of vanity projects, which were for the elites, but writ large, the, the commuter trains and so on actually performed worse under Mussolini, and most of the major investments that did cause the improvements 
happened under his predecessor. Now, why is this important? Because people who are bad leaders and people who are authoritarians who can put their finger on the scale and, and change the way that we, we perceive them by manipulating the media or the narrative around them, they're masterful at deception, right? And so I think what's actually happening a lot of the time with these leaders is that they end up taking the hard decisions, delaying them until the last possible moment, hmm. and then letting the person who succeeds them deal with the mess. And this happens a lot, you know, even in corporate society, we have, um, there's lots of times where CEOs, for example, you know, in film companies, where they take credit for a quarterly profit that is derived from movie decisions that were picked by the person in front of them, uh, you know, but the person before them who actually had commissioned the film, but it came out under the subsequent CEO. So, you know, I think we have to do a better job of accurately evaluating leaders and holding them accountable when they deserve it, but making sure that our judgments are actually correct. Okay, so let's talk about what we can do about all of this, because this is the hard part. I mean, it's we, we, we know how people are wired, we understand the incentives, and you go through, you devote a big chunk of your book to what we ought to do, including what the, the, the lessons, including the need to attract the incorruptible. So your lesson number one is actively recruit incorruptible people and screen out corruptible ones. How do you do that? Yeah, it's- Our, it, our it, political it, system doesn't do that well anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, that that reflects part of what I was talking about before. You have to make power safe. You have to make power uh, palatable to people who would otherwise want to serve their communities. But I think, I think also we have to make sure that we have lots of competition. I think we need to make the system create competition. So one of the things in the U.S., for example, that I find really disturbing is how, you know, I crunched the numbers back in 2016 for the average margin of victory in a house race. And the average margin of victory in a house race in the United States in 2016 was 37.1%. So just about a 70-30 landslide. Now, I mean, it doesn't take a political scientist to understand what happens when you have a 70-30 district. You have one election that matters, that's the primary. And the only thing that's going to end up producing a loss is if you compromise with the other side, especially with the political dynamics we have now. So you have to engineer systems that amplify competition so that people want to be in these positions of power and they actually have a genuine uh, you know, opponent who will make them behave better from a different party or a different side. I think that's part of it. I also think, you know, one of the things that we need to consider, and I, I this is my one of my more out there ideas in the book, but I think it's worth considering, is drawing on this principle of sortition from ancient Greece, where they use mm -hmm. this device called the claritarian to select citizen assemblies. Now, I think a citizen assembly randomly selected is actually a very bad idea, because I think that politicians actually develop skills, right? They have expertise, and I think it's important to have specialists in Congress. But I also think that oversight using certition has a very promising aspect to it, which is to say it forces politicians or people in business to, sh to show their work. What I envision happening is a parallel House of Representatives, you know, 435 randomly selected Americans, that get asked, let's say, 10 big questions uh, that coincide with the work that the House is doing that year. You know, what should we do about tax reform? What should we do about the January 6th committee? What, sh what should we do about infrastructure? Now, they would make non-binding recommendations, having access to all the same experts, advice, et cetera, that, that Congress has access to. And then what would happen is when there's a divergence, at least you'd have you'd have a point to ask them, right? You could take people on the Ballwork podcast and you could say, yeah. why is it that you came to a totally different recommendation than what these representative sample of Americans want you to do? 
And I think that level of, of oversight and accountability could be very healthy for our system. So what are the other lessons? I mean, you, you have a number. Which, which, which do you think are the most important? I mean, lesson number three is rotate to, uh, to reduce abuse. Uh, lesson number four is audit decision-making processes, not just the results of creating frequent, potent reminders of responsibility. But when, when you step back, what, what are the most important things we could do to limit the corruption of power? Yeah, so I have 10 in the book, and one of the things that I readily acknowledge uh, is that none of them are silver bullets, right? The, the point is that you can't do one or the other because they're tackling different parts of the problem. So some of them, like rotating people around, which police officers in London, for example, they have to rotate their partners regularly to avoid collusion. That is something that helps you basically take someone who's already in the system, who's already mm -hmm. a bad apple, and try to make sure they can't get away with it totally different problem than recruiting better apples to begin with, right? Yeah. So I don't think that any one of them will solve this problem. But I do think that we have to think much more creatively about how we engineer systems. And I don't mean this in some sort of you know Orwellian way. I just mean we are all pretty much disappointed. I mean, across the board, when I talk to people and I say, I'm a political scientist. One of the first things that happens after they try to run away from me and not want to talk to me because they find it boring <laughs> is uh, they say, you know, why do we have so many awful people in charge? I, I got this refrain yeah. over and over and over. And I think the answer is actually that we haven't thought about how we could design systems that put good people in charge. And I think it's really that simple. It's a, it's a failure of imagination. The one I'll talk to you about briefly, though, is this, this chapter I have on the weight of responsibility. And it's reminding people in power uh, the effects of their decisions. Because I think that the abstractions that come with being in a position of immense power have never been greater, right? I mean, it's easier than ever to be a CEO who dr dumps toxic sludge 3,000 miles away and never sees mm -hmm. the sludge. That, that didn't used to be true uh, you know, in, in, in most jobs centuries ago. Hmm. And so you know, I, I juxtapose in this chapter the differences in my experience interviewing Ken Feinberg, who was in charge of the 9-11 commission mm -hmm. uh, that was trying to figure out how to decide the victim's compensation funds, and John Yu, who wrote the now infamous memo that was involved torture. with enhanced interrogation or yeah. torture, however you want to describe it. And what struck me in those conversations with both of them, and that's why I put them together in the book, is you know, Feinberg was agonizing over these decisions. He had to put a dollar amount on the value of someone's life who died on 9-11. I mean, it's one of the hardest things, just crushing emotional responsibility. Now, he could have just done this as an algorithm or a formula. And to an extent, he did use mathematical concepts to figure out the, the, the answer. But he insisted on meeting with the families. And he wanted to, to talk to the families before he told them how much he was going to give them or how much the, the, the compensation fund was awarding them. Just for the sake that he thought, what he, what he said to me was, I want to always be crushed by this decision because it keeps me honest. It keeps me healthy. It makes sure that I understand how important getting this right is. What I took away from my conversation with John Yu, I, I flew out to Berkeley in California and I met with him. And, you know, I, I, I tried to press him on it. You know, I, people listening to this will have different views on whether Yu was right or not. But I would hope that people would think, okay, this is a hard choice, right? Like you're deciding what kind of interrogation techniques are legal when it comes to stuff that's pretty grim, right? Waterboarding, putting people in caskets with live insects, et cetera, which was you know, one of the things that was approved. And I, I pushed him on it and he said, it was a logical question. I didn't lose any sleep over it. You mm -hmm. know, it was a legal question. So and it was I kept an abstraction to him. 
yeah, and I kept, you know, I kept on coming back to this, and I left that meeting, and I was like, hmm. you know, he may never have changed his mind, right? I mean, he's a lawyer; he's supposed to make a legal determination. But it's weird to me that he never thought this was like a difficult moral question when he talked about it. It was like the most, you know, simple thing in the world. And I thought, I don't, you know, I don't know this for sure, but I, I can't imagine John Yu flew out to a black site and watched this. And I wonder if it would have changed him a little bit. And given him that sense of responsibility, had he done that? Because I have interviewed people who ordered torture. I've interviewed former despots who've done that. Uh, and I've also interviewed torture victims. And you know, when I write about the people who ordered torture, I think it gives me a healthy dose of, of context to have also understood what their victims feel. And I think you know, people in positions of power have to make impossible decisions all the time. I would hope, and I think this would be true for most people, that they would actually make more just decisions if they encountered the real world consequences of them more regularly. So empathy would be a counter indicator to this kind of corruption of power. Yes, and, and you know, again, alone, is that gonna do it? I mean, if you're a psychopath and you all of a sudden get exposed to the, to the plight of your victims, you're not gonna care. I mean, that's psychopaths don't care about other people very much. So you can't do them in isolation, but you have to do them in tandem, I think, in order to have a meaningful effect. And I don't think that we're ever going to make the perfect system. I just think that we're not really trying to think creatively about how to get better people into power and make bad people behave better once they're there. So we've been talking about the, the mechanisms and the systems to get more good people into power. And it, 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 it may be a way above our pay grade to ask this question, but are there ways of making more good people? Um, is there a way in which we can create a larger pool of ethical, uncorruptible people out there? And, and I guess this is more of a philosophical question. And of course, gets you know gets into the debate about uh, the role of religion and ethics and in, in, in creating a, a, a moral sensibility. But you'd be given thought to, to to that that question, or is that just simply too abstract? To talk about how, how do you spread virtue among the population? Because a, a more virtuous population is less likely to be corruptible. Or am I? Wrong? It's it's a, it's a completely great. I mean, it's a great question. And I think you know, I'm generally of the view, despite the fact that I've most of my professional life, I've I've interacted and interviewed people who are the worst of humanity. Right? I still actually have a very optimistic view of human nature. I think that most of us are good people, and so I think the major challenge is actually getting them into power, not making better people. Now, I do think we can make better people, though. I think we can make a society that has more virtue and has more ethical. Uh, more of an ethical compass and so on. And one of the things I talk about later on in the book that I found really interesting, I'd never been exposed to this idea before in my own research, but it was looking at how the role of religion throughout history has played this, this role of basically a, a check on mm -hmm. our darkest impulses. Right. Because, you know, throughout society, there's this argument of a, a, a sociologist and anthropologist, his book's called Big Gods. And what he says is that most of human history has a belief in big gods, you know, who can see everything. And therefore, there's a level of accountability that exists, even if the state doesn't work, right? Even if there's no police, even if there's no sheriff, whatever it is. And that has, you know, to a large degree in a lot of modern society has disappeared. And so in some societies, they've found a way to, to try to reproduce that effect, you know, in places like Scandinavia, where... There's plenty of, of problems with the society, plenty of issues that you have to deal with, and, pl and plenty of people listening to this, I'm sure, find the, the structure of, of, of socialist policies mm -hmm. there abhorrent. But I think what they've done is they've created a society that does have oversight. 
And so in a way, you know, this argument is you, you have to have some level of internalized belief that people have that when they behave badly, there will be consequences for it, either in this life or the next. And so the more that we have that as a central aspect, I think, to our, our societies in a, in a positive way, right? Not an authoritarian surveillance state. I'm very opposed to that. But in, in a way that sort of makes it clear that actually there's a community that will hold you accountable. And I think that's what, again, you know, coming back to what we started talking about with Steve Bannon, I mean, the whole point is to show that the consequences don't matter. I mean, live streaming your mm-hmm. arrest is right. a way to telegraph that this is a joke. So if we want to get better people, we need to have people who are visible in you know, Hollywood, in business, in politics, in sports, telegraphing to us that actually the rules are important and that virtue is something that we should all aspire uh, to in our, in our daily lives. And I think that you know, we can actually build a better society with better people in it and get them into power more often. And I think that's part of the, the task of imagination for the 21st century for the United States. The book is Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. And I noticed that uh, what Heather Cox Richardson uh, said about this, engrossing, thought-provoking, and funding an important exploration of how ordinary people can keep leadership out of the hands of monsters. Seems like a relevant thing. Brian Kloss, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. It was a great conversation. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We will do this all over again.